Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, A Shepherd Who is Good. It's based upon the lectionary readings for April 25th, 2021, the fourth Sunday of Easter. One of the many crises of this past year has been a crisis of authority. As conflicting news reports, scientific studies, and expert voices have told us how to manage the challenges of COVID, we have grown weary, suspicious, and cynical. Whose guidance and leadership can we trust? Who will tell us the truth? Whose voice should we listen to? In our Gospel reading for this fourth Sunday in Easter, we see a version of leadership quite different from the ones we're used to in politics and the media. John describes a leader who lays down his life, a leader who literally places his body in harm's way for the sake of those he leads. This is a leader with integrity and courage, a leader with skin in the game, a leader who is self-sacrificially good. If you grew up in the church, you probably learned about this leader, Jesus the Good Shepherd, before you could walk. Maybe there was a painting of a gentle-faced Jesus in your church nursery, an adorable lamb perched on his shoulders. Maybe you made flocks of sheep out of toothpicks, cotton balls, and Elmer's glue in Sunday school, or had a teacher who moved a felt and sharpie shepherd across a pine-green flannel graph dotted with fleecy lambs, while you waited for the wolf to show up and make the story interesting. If you're a preacher's kid like me, maybe your clergy parent made you sing, I just want to be a sheep, ba ba," until you flinched in embarrassment. In other words, I don't think I'm the only one who finds a good shepherd passages in John's Gospel difficult. Though I long for the trustworthy leadership John describes via this metaphor, I'm not sure how to apply a shepherd to my 21st century life. The image is over-familiar, its beauty buried under so much saccharine piety and hallmark card sentiment, I'm not sure what to do with it. Most of us have no real-life idea what Jesus was talking about when he described the life of faith in terms of shepherds, sheep, hirelings, and wolves. The images we hold in our heads aren't substantive and gritty. They are ephemeral and soft, like watercolor pastels. The thing is, Jesus was an effective teacher because he used metaphors his contemporary audience could relate to. When he spoke of sheepfolds, vineyards, mustard seeds, and fishing nets, he was not spouting exotica. He was wielding the stuff of first-century peasant life. So the problem isn't Jesus, it's me. I've never herded sheep, met a shepherd, or fought a wild predator in my life. But I did grow, I did grow up visiting my grandparents' farms in India. And I can tell you this. I never saw my grandfather drape an immaculate baby sheep over his clean, robed shoulders. Most of the time, the animals on his farm stink. Often, at the end of a long day in their midst, so did he. How the church went from the mud-stained hardships of animal husbandry to a manicured Jesus cuddling a lily-white lamb is beyond me. So I come to this week's readings jaded on the one hand and ignorant on the other. What did Jesus mean when he called himself the Good Shepherd? In what ways am I like a sheep? What flock do I belong to and whose voice do I follow most readily? I don't have black and white answers, but I have questions. Questions that point to an ongoing desire to re-engage and recover this metaphor for my own life. As I read and reread John's Gospel, here are some of those questions. Why did Jesus use a shepherd metaphor in his time and place? 
According to the Gospel reading, Jesus had just healed a blind man on the Sabbath, and the religious elite were furious. Moreover, it was the Feast of the Dedication, the holiday we know today as Hanukkah, when Jewish people celebrate the rededication of the Temple after the victory of Judas Maccabeus in 2nd century BCE. And Jesus was walking in the Temple itself, the very place the Jewish people venerated as representative of their unique, covenantal relationship with God. Why call himself a shepherd in that setting? The image of a shepherd telling his or her flock would have been deeply ingrained in the religious imaginations of the Israelites. They knew that Rachel was a shepherd. They knew that Zipporah and her sisters were as well. They knew Moses tended sheep before God commissioned him to lead the Israelites out of slavery. They knew King David started out as a shepherd before ascending to the throne. They knew Yahweh as the ultimate shepherd over his flock, Israel. So I wonder if Jesus was saying something provocative rather than self-effacing when he called himself the Good Shepherd. I tend to think meek and mild when I imagine Jesus cradling lambs. But why would meek and mild incense his listeners who attempted to arrest him for using this particular metaphor? Was Jesus in fact equating himself with God, the Shepherd King? On the very occasion when the Jewish people of his day were celebrating the supremacy of the temple and its centrality in their religious lives, was Jesus suggesting that God's presence actually dwells in the wilderness, out among the wolves, the thieves, the hirelings, and the smelly sheep? In other words, among the outcasts, the irreligious, the ritually unclean, and the politically incorrect. If so, what might this provocative teaching mean for us today? Where is my temple? Where is my wilderness? Where are the places I assume God doesn't dwell? What did Jesus mean when he said, I know my own and my own know me? The line startles me because I'm not convinced that the life of faith is so straightforward, so certain. I'm remembering times in my life when I have not known for sure who God is or what God desires of me, when I have feared that I am not Jesus' own. If Jesus is so certain of my identity, so sure that I'm capable of discerning his voice, I wonder what keeps me hanging in doubt and fear. I think of the barriers that lie between Jesus' assurance and my faith. There are barriers of doctrine. Do I believe all the right things about God? Do I have my creeds in order? Is there some nuance of theology I'm missing? There are barriers of guilt. How can I really be forgiven when I mess up so often? If I belong to the shepherd, why is it so easy to wander away? Surely there must be a catch somewhere. And there are barriers of pain. I've cried out for my shepherd's voice many times and experienced silence. Or if Jesus has spoken, I have not recognized him. If the metaphor isn't perfect, or if it leaves much to mystery, could I still find the courage to lean into it? Maybe the barriers I've named are of my own making. Maybe what Jesus is saying in this passage is more straightforward and more radical. You belong. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I know you, you are mine, period. Who are my modern-day hirelings? In the story Jesus tells, the hired hands are pseudo-shepherds who work for personal gain, not love. They have no stake in the well-being of the sheep. They flee at the first sign of danger. So I wonder, whose voices do I heed to my detriment? What siren songs call to me, making seductive promises I shouldn't trust? Money, success, physical attractiveness, prestige, politics, racial, cultural, or national identity. These are the biggies easiest to name. 
What else calls to me, promising a version of love that is ultimately thin, cheap, fragile, and unsafe? Moreover, if my calling in this life is to work under the auspices of the Master Shepherd, what kind of hireling will I be? Will I skip town at the first hint of risk or hardship? Will I use the sheep for my own gain, or will I love them as I love my own skin? What will laying down my life look like? Why has the church blunted this metaphor? I've heard that sheep are dumb and skittish. I've heard they wander, get hurt easily, graze without ceasing, and bicker for no reason. I've heard they're stubborn, that they long to be led but resist being driven. So I wonder what Jesus has to put up with shepherding me. Does he fight loneliness and boredom as I ignore him in favor of greener pastures? Does he watch the dumb, skittish, stubborn things I do, hoping I won't injure myself yet again? Maybe he rescues me from death all the time, while I, oblivious, resist his efforts tooth and nail. The more I read John chapter 10, the more gritty and challenging it sounds. As the good shepherd, Jesus loves the obstinate and the lost. He lives at the edges of polite society, out in the wild, untamed places of the world. His life remains perpetually in danger. He faces again and again the mockery and abandonment of the hirelings who consider his self-sacrificial vocation absurd. Because he's in it for the long haul, he not only frolics with the lambs, he wrestles with the wolves. He not only tends the wounds of his beloved rams, he buries them when their time comes. No wonder the church has turned Jesus the shepherd into a greeting card. It's hard to face the bold, patient, and tenacious leader he really is. It hurts to trade the Hallmark card for the long nights and danger-filled days of a vocation in the muck. So, how will we incarnate the love of this magnificent shepherd? How will we spread his goodness in the wildest of wild places? In the valleys, among the wolves, within the flock he knows and loves? What will it take to recover his fortitude, his courage, his boundless love? On this fourth Sunday after Easter, we know that Jesus is a shepherd who keeps his promises. He has already laid down his life for his sheep. Now it's our turn. Our shepherd is calling and his call is trustworthy. But we are free as always to resist. We follow what we belong to. Is it him? For books this week, Dan reviews Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life by William Finnegan. To thine own self be true, urged Polonius in Shakespeare's Hamlet. William Finnegan rode his first wave when he was 10 years old. For his 11th birthday, his dad bought him his first surfboard. He was hooked and he never looked back. 50 years later, and having traveled the world to find the perfect waves, he surfed in the winter sleet of Long Island. Finnegan's memoir won a Pulitzer Prize in 2016 for his reflections on his lifelong obsession with surfing. He admits that his addiction was a justifiable worry for his parents and an obviously self-centered way of life. Early on, he describes, quote, the special brand of monomania, antisocial and ill-balanced, that a serious commitment to surfing nearly always brought with it. This was a track that led away from citizenship, in the ancient sense of the word, to a scratched-out frontier where we would live as latter-day barbarians. This was not the daydream of the happy idler, it went deeper than that. Chasing waves in a dedicated way was both profoundly egocentric and selfless, dynamic and ascetic, radical in its rejection of the values of duty and conventional achievement. End quote. 
At one point in his four-year junket surfing around the world, he wonders if he has wasted his life. There were times when he felt deeply lost. When he finally settled down, he opened his bank account, first one at the age of 31. Despite his vagabond life, it's apparent that Finnegan was always a prolific reader and writer. He always kept a journal and finished two unpublished novels while moonlighting as a pot washer and ditch digger to support his global surfing habit. Writing travel pieces led to bigger opportunities. Teaching school in a South African township during apartheid was a baptism of fire into social justice that led to war reporting all over the world. Eventually, he became a full-time staff writer for The New Yorker. By the end of his story, Finnegan admits that in many ways he has been domesticated. In the last sentence of the book, he confesses, I didn't want it to end. For films this week, Dan reviews The Women in the Sand. I watched this film after reading several books about indigenous peoples in North and South America, and then seeing that it won numerous if local film awards. The subtitle of the film is revealing, a story of Death Valley's original people. Having vacationed in the harsh desert of Death Valley, the hottest place on earth, from bad water that is 280 feet below sea level to Telescope Peak at 11,043 feet, I wanted to learn more. This one-hour documentary features the history of the Tembisha Shoshone people, and in particular two of its elders. Pauline Estevez is 93 years old and a longtime activist on Native American issues. Her sister-in-law, Madeline Estevez, 84, is a traditional Timbisha basket maker. The two women tell stories about their traditional nomadic lifestyle in Death Valley that's made up of hunting, gathering wild food, visiting sacred sites, art, and participating in ancient tribal rituals. For about 60 years now, Pauline and Maddie have fought all sorts of foes that would destroy their history and culture, not to mention their ancient language, in what is now Death Valley National Park. Mining companies, gold prospectors, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the National Park Service, con men, scoundrels of all types, and even their own tribal council that is 155 miles away in Bishop. Their goal is federal recognition for the tribe, for the repatriation of their homeland, and for the continued survival of their traditional ways. Their foes are apparently unmoved, but Pauline and Maddie, as one blurb put it, are undaunted. As you might expect, the photography of this desolate place is beautiful. I watched this film on Amazon Streaming. And lastly, for poetry... O Shepherd of Souls by Hildegard of Bingen. O Shepherd of Souls and O First Voice through whom all creation was summoned, now to you, to you may it give pleasure and dignity to liberate us from our miseries and languishing. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 25th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.